and is everyone caught up now, kind of, with the reading? That's good. Glad to hear it. We're getting a lot of variety. Uh, so I think what we'll try to do today is um, finish up with Rape of the Lock, talk um, about the two saddest poems, depending on your definition of sad, uh, that we're reading. That is Eloisa de Abelard and To the Memory of an Unfortunate Lady. And um, then we'll, I hope, get a chance to look at some of the Epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot. Of course, as is always the way, as soon as I say I hope we'll get to something, I tend to turn right to it. But we won't right now because we're right in the middle of Rape of the Lock. Um, so we were, uh, one of the things that Pope says in the headnote that you uh, may or may have not have noticed is um, that it took him a while to finish the poem because he put in a whole lot of what he calls the machinery. And the machinery is what um, epics require um, or seem to require. That is, it's um, catalogs. It, there, there's a whole lot of standard stuff in Homeric and Virgilian epic, at, which Milton picks up also. Um, catalogs of people, um, battles um, described in some detail, um, lots of stuff about the intervention of the gods. If you know the phrase deus ex machina or deus ex machina, um, what it means is that it's the entry um, of the gods um, into a story and the interference or the, um, uh, the, the um, effect that, that a god or gods has on the unfolding of the story. Um, so Pope is writing a mock epic, so he does a similar thing, and the machinery of epic battles is a card game. Um, there's a descent into the underworld, into the cave of spleen, um, there are there is the attempted um, intervention of the sylphs um, who try to protect Belinda but fail to or try to protect well try to protect her and in particular try to protect the lock of her hair but fail to and then there's the apotheosis of the lock um, when it appears in heaven so um, all of that is um, added later and it's one of those things where the thing about a mock epic is that you can always add more jokes to it. Um, it's not supposed to be um, as direct and straightforward as possible. It's supposed to show all the different ways that you can do a parody of um, a straight-ahead epic. And Rape of the Lock, I think, is widely regarded as the greatest mock, mock epic in English. Um, there are others, but there's really nothing that holds a candle to it. Um, so I hope you guys found it funny. Let's not obscene, but funny. No, not funny. Is, have, has this course has this course course in you? Um, so that now the only thing, at least you found that funny. Um, so that the only thing you find funny now are, is incredibly obscene, <laughs> not suggestive but explicit, not safe for work poems by um, Rochester. Is that where we are? That would be bad. Yeah. Well, Oh really? Epic poetry? Yeah, or just actually 
Well, meant to be what? Just sleepless lovers just at 12 arise? Well, like, Well, after all that Rochester and Dryden and Swift, um, I mean, what, remember Pope and Swift were friends. And uh, if you think back on that later Swift po- um, poem that we looked at, um, uh, uh, the um, beautiful lady going to bed, um, that's more realistic. Um, you can get a sense of, well, of course, realism, but realism by reading Swift and Rochester, um, and to some extent Dryden. Um, they're describing the world as it is. Um, Pope is also spends a lot of time. Um, do I really want to say that? No. Pope is writing in a mode um, where there's a kind of assumption from his topicality. So one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that um, some of you were um, unhappy about were all the references, maybe it was just a week ago, all the references to um, people you didn't know and situations and issues and and so on that you didn't know what they were and the footnotes, um, especially in this one volume version of the Twickenham edition, don't help that much. A lot of these poems, a lot, but not probably not quite the majority of lines, are also in the Oxford Anthology, which has better, um, fuller notes. The Twickenham notes, if you get the multi-volume edition, the notes are full. Here, um, they only give you the essential notes. But that can mean if you're reading it in this edition and only getting the, the most essential notes, um, all the topical references aren't explained. Um, not all the topical references are explained. Um, the um, way, but there are a lot of them. And the very fact that there's so many topical references, that Pope is um, talking about his friends and his enemies probably more than his friends and talking about people that he knows, um, is already a kind of sign of um, a realistic point of view on the part of the poet. Um, there are There's a lot of flexibility in Pope, but the point about Pope is that he's talking about a world that's familiar to those around him. He's not setting his poems in the distant past, as Milton does. He's not setting his poems um, in um, highly idealized worlds or contexts. Um, what he's doing is he's writing poems about the world, the urban world around him, um, to some extent the rural world around him. Um, one of the things, I mean, if you look at the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot, see, I knew we would do it, um, like, right away. But if you go to the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot, um, one of the things that he does is he, do, is he gives a kind of verse autobiography. Um, a whole lot of that autobiography is um, an autobiography of, of the enemies, or an autobiography by way of listing the enemies he's made and why they're jerks. Um, and um, a lot of, you know, he was obviously a jerk himself. Um, he made a lot of enemies because he um, wrote with a great deal of asperity and um, had a great deal of asperity in his personal relations. But still, we're getting this autobiography. If you go to um, page 602 of the Twickenham, um, which if you're looking at it in the Oxford, no one has the Oxford, right, with them? You all have the Twickenham? 
Um, if you go to page 602, this is line, well, it's actually worth going back to the previous first paragraph, which is the most famous one. Um, so starting at line 115, page 601, there are who to my person pay their court. So he's talking about flatterers. Um, and he's saying the price of being a writer and being um, a well-known and well-regarded writer um, is that you're stalked by flatterers, um, people who want something from you and they pay court to you. So there are, that is there are some, there are who to my person pay their court. I cough like Horace and though lean am short. So there are people who um, try the extremely unlikely road of telling Pope that he's good looking, or at least that he looks like a poet, that he looks like a great man. Um, so it's true he has a cough, he was tubercular, he's coughing all the time. So they say, well, that's, you know, Horace was known to cough all the time. That's a sign of a great poet. Um, and though lean, um, because he's so ill, um, am short, so it doesn't really matter. So what they're doing is they're trying to oppose two things that are um, that two defects as though they cancel each other out. Two things that he regards as defects as though they cancel each other out. Um, Pope was, I don't know if the note tells you this. No, it doesn't. Pope was 4'6", which is um, taller than the now, but still not very tall. Um, and, well, people weren't, the average height, the average height now is 5'10 for men. Um, the average height then for men was probably around 5'4". Um, but still, 4'6 is short. Um, so um, he really was very short. And as I mentioned last class, he also um, was, was um, hunchback. Um, so the idea that anyone would try to flatter Pope by telling him that he's good looking, that's how you flatter Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Um, Pope was too smart and too acid um, and had too much self-knowledge to, um, well, to be flattered in general. Everyone was always flattering him because he was such an amazing poet. Um, but um, he knew it. He knew that he was being flattered. So here are what people say to him. There, there are who to my person pay their court. I cough like Horace and the lean and short. Ammon's great son, one shoulder had two high. So there's supposedly a tradition that Alexander the Great was um, asymmetrical. Um, Ammon's great son, we know, um, don't we, from um, Dryden and from the SM criticism that um, that's Alexander the Great. So this is Alexander the Little, um, who's being compared to Alexander the Great. Um, Ammon's great son, one shoulder had two highs, so Pope's being a hunchback doesn't, um, uh, again, it just shows how he's like his, his um, great um, eponymous uh, um, forebear in the annals of importance. Um, such Ovid's nose, so um, Pope's nose is, is um, kind of misshapen, but so is Ovid's. And, sir, you have an eye, um, which might mean either um, an interruption about how he's squinting, or it might mean, you know, you may have a bad nose, but you can really see things. And then he says, go on to the flatters, go on obliging creatures, make me see all that disgraced my betters met in me. 
So they're all these great people, and um, they all had flaws. And yeah, keep, keep going. Um, show that all their flaws are combined in me. Um, that's great. Um, say, for my comfort, languishing in bed, so if I'm sick in bed and can't get out and I'm languishing in bed, say, for my comfort, languishing in bed, just so immortal marrow held his head. So just the way you're lying in bed, um, all sick and so on. So did Virgil um, when he was sick. You look just like him. And when I die, be sure you let me know great Homer died 3,000 years ago. Um, so that's um, what later he's going to call this long disease, my life. Um, probably the most famous um, single line in the poem, this long disease, well, the most famous line that everyone knows is Pope's, um, this long disease, my life. Um, and then this um, gets him to asking, um, given that the wages of being um, a well-known writer um, is flattery, he asks, why did I write? Why did I go into this trade? Why did I do it? Why did I write? What sin, to me unknown, dipped me in ink? My parents or my own? So was it, was it some sin that my parents committed that dipped me in ink, made me a scribbler or a writer, or was it my own sin? Um, and he, now you get a little quick poetic um, autobiography of his childhood. As yet a child nor yet a fool to fame. I lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. So even as a little child, um, I was producing poetry all the time. I lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. I left no calling for this idle trade. That is, I didn't have a good, honest job that I quit in order to become a writer, like so many people. I left no calling for this idle trade. No duty broke, no father disobeyed, the muse but served to ease some friend, not wife, to help me through this long disease, my life. So there it is. Um, and the muse was, um, came to me not as a spouse, but as a friend, helping me through, um, through the um, misery, the physical misery of my life. Um, to second Arbuthnot thy art and care and teach the being you preserved to bear. Um, Arbuthnot was his doctor. Um, remember that Swift mentions him also in Verses on the Death of Dr. Swift. Um, so Arbuthnot was a very close friend of Swift's and Pope's and his doctor. And what he's saying is poetry helped me live the life that you helped um, preserve through your medical all right, so that explains why I wrote some sin, um, some natural proclivity. I lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. Um, list, by the way, does everyone know what list means there? Yes, exactly. When he says I lisped in numbers, he means that before I could even pronounce, when I was so little that I couldn't even pronounce words right, um, when I was three years old or so, um, I was still... Um, uh, speaking rhythmically and in rhymes. Um, poetry goes way back, goes way back for me. 
Okay, that's why I wrote, but why then publish? Granville, the polite and knowing Walsh, would tell me I could write. Um, so these are, these are older poets and critics whom Pope knew as a child and as a very young man. Um, and they were praising his skill, even when he was 11 or 12 years old. Well-natured Garth, inflamed with early praise, and Congreve loved and swift endured my lays. Um, so Congreve loved um, Pope's early poetry, and Swift endured him. Um, now remember, Swift actually has quite the praise of Pope in the verses on the death of Dr. Swift, where he talks about how Pope can say in one couplet what takes him six. But Pope, in a way, is returning um, the courtesy here by saying Swift is a great poet, but he endured what I wrote. Yeah, a lay is a kind of poet, a kind of poem. Um, it goes back to um, early early French poetry. Um, so it's it's uh, um, it's a song, sometimes a narrative song. It's it's a highly um, metrical one. I don't know that the, I don't think there's a technical meaning for it in English, um, but its uh, it, its connotation is um, poems that are that are interesting and absorbing and um, simple and, and and sweet and. Um, uh, well worth hearing. Not this kind of poem. Um, narrative poems are often called lays. Um, if you know Marie de France, the, her, um, the collection of her work is called The Lays of Marie de France. Or, or uh, Sir Walter Scott has a great long narrative poem, poem called The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Um, the courtly Talbot, Summers, Sheffield read... Even mitred Rochester would nod the head. This isn't our Rochester. This is a different one. And St. John's self, um, probably pronounced St. John, but I'm not sure. Um, and St. John's self, great Dryden's friends before, with open arms, received one poet more. So I was a child, and why did I publish? Because all these poets taught me to. Um, they received yet another poet into their ranks. Happy my studies when by these approved. Happier their author when by these beloved. From these the world will judge of men and books. Not from the Burnets, Aldmansons, and Cooks. So there were these great people who liked my work and the fact that they liked me, that was so wonderful to me. That made me happy. Um, so he started writing poetry and here's the kind of poetry he used to write. Soft were my numbers. Who could take offense while pure description held the place of sense? So when he started writing, he wrote in soft numbers, and he said, I offended no one. Who could take offense when pure, while pure description held the place of sense? So what he's saying is what my early poetry was, and you've read an example um, of this, and indeed... He's probably thinking of this most of all. Um, Windsor Forest is um, poetry which was all about um, the description of nature or of the world or of gardens or of parks or whatever. Um, not poetry which said anything, just poetry which was lovely to read. And he said, how could anyone take offense by that um, when I wrote that sort of poetry? Um, 
Like gentle fannies was my flowery theme, a painted mistress or a purling stream. Um, that line, a painted mistress or a purling stream, is actually a quotation. Um, and he's parodying a line which is actually a painted meadow or a purling stream. Um, the, um, the joke is to turn meadow, a painted meadow means a meadow with a lot of flowers, into a mistress, that means um, a woman with a lot of makeup. Um, but again, the point is that he used to write just these pure descriptive poems, a little bit like Denham in Cooper's Hill, which, remember, is what we started with. Um, but then he says what happened, and we won't go on anymore with this right now, but what happened was um, his own generation started showing jealousy of him. So he wrote these beautiful descriptive poems, which he himself says are worthless, or near worthless. They have no sense to them. They're just um, about being able to um, uh, produce empty beauty, um, substanceless beauty. But he did it well enough that people started getting jealous, and they started attacking him, um, as critics do. And remember his big... Um, although he gives as good as he gets, what we've seen from the essay and criticism on is that what he can't stand is niggling. What he can't stand are people who try to make themselves great by finding by, by fault finding. So that even further down on this page, this is going to matter for the Dunciad because the Dunciad is all about those dunces who what they do is they niggle. Um, so uh, did some more sober critic come abroad? Well, let's just read to the end of this page. Um, yet then did Gilton draw his venal quill. I wish the man had dinner and sat still. So he, he's attacked by Gildan, but he doesn't respond. Um, yet then did Dennis rave in furious fret. I never answered. I was not in debt. Um, so he's being attacked, but he's above it all. I never answered. I was not in debt. Um, uh, if want provoked or madness made them print, I waged no, no war with Bedlam or the Mint. So if the reason they printed these attacks on me was that they were poor and needed to make money by writing some scurrilous attack, you know, kind of bloggers who are looking for a donation. Um, or if they attacked me because they were crazy, um, I wasn't going to mix it up with Bedlam, that is the lunatic asylum, or the Mint, that is the place where debtors um, tend to hide out. Um, so, if the, so they were obviously attacking me for their own reasons. Now notice what's happened in this verse paragraph of his autobiography is we've gone, we've, we have two kinds of poetry that are being described here. Poetry, which is just pure description without any sense. Um, you could call it um, pure plastic poetry. Poetry which is only about the beauty of its own surface and not about its meanings at all. Um, and, um, and we've gone from a description of that kind of poetry to the description of poetry written by madmen or debtors um, for money or out of fury. Um, the very opposite of the kind of poetry that you get in Windsor Forest. Um, and that gives you the whole range that poetry covers, the kind of 
um, idealistic adolescent, oh, it's all so beautiful, um, poetry the Pope used to write, um, and then the kind of poetry which is just full of vicious, almost crazily vicious or desperately greedy attacks on other people. And this first paragraph gives you that whole range and shows you how Pope was being pulled into um, response to the attacks, pulled away from writing pure poetry into writing topical poetry, which is what it turns out our subject for the first part of this class is, is topical poetry. Um, but let's go on. Did some more sober critic come abroad? Someone who wasn't crazy or a desperate debtor? Did some more sober critic come abroad? If wrong, I smiled. So if he got criticism that he thought was wrong, he smiled. He didn't um, react. He didn't let it get his goat. If wrong, I smiled. If right, I kissed the rod. If I saw that the critic was criticizing me correctly, I accepted that correction. Pains, reading, study, are there just pretense? So the critics um, are right. They can pretend to pains, reading, and study. They're really learned. Pains, reading, study, are there just pretense? And all they want is spirit, taste, and sense. So in a way, that's the essay and criticism in a couplet. Um, that pains, reading, and study, that's all fine. That's all very well. But what really matters to understand a poet is spirit, taste, and sense. Commas and points, they set exactly right. So when they do their textual editing, they're extremely important, it's extremely um, careful um, about where the commas go. Extremely careful about the punctuation. Um, points means punctuation. Um, our word punctuation comes from the Latin punctus, which means point. So point is just a word for punctuation, the, getting the points right. Um, so commas, and, and that's why a point is called, when you say, you know, 98.6, the point in point six is um, the period, the decimal period. Commas and points, they set exactly right and were a sin to rob them of their might. That is the one little thing they know. I'm not going to attack them for that. They're really good textual editors. Um, they're really, really good at this pedantry. And if I were to start saying they get it wrong, which he actually did, um, part of the fight here was that Tybalt, who's um, uh, one of the people he's going to talk about later, attacked his edition of Shakespeare. Um, and Tybalt is one of the great Shakespeare editors. He's not a poet. Um, but he, although he had some weirdo thing towards the end of his life, but we, we don't need to go into that here. Um, Tybalt was not a poet. Um, but he was an editor, and, um, and a really good one. Um, Pope was, was a poet, but he wasn't an editor. And to the extent that he tried to edit, he was pretty bad. So Tybalt really laid into Pope, um, and Pope um, congratulated him for the greatness of his pedantry. Um, and that's a whole lot of what the Dunciad is going to be about also. Um, each um, uh, yet near... One sprig of laurel graced these revolts. That is no, no um, sign of poetry. Um, laurel, if you know the term poet laureate, um, the poet, because um, Apollo is the god of poetry, the poet is crowned with laurel. 
Um, yet, near one sprig of laurel graced these ribalds from slashing Bentley down to piddling Tybalt. So that's the first reference to Tybalt um, in the poem. Um, Bentley was a very famous Homeric editor in the 18th century, who was also very famous for um, the worst edition of Paradise Lost ever done, um, which is no mean feat. There are many, many bad editions of Paradise Lost. Um, but Bentley's version of Paradise Lost, Virginia Woolf has a great essay on Bentley and his um, edition of Paradise Lost. It's famously bad because what Bentley assumed was that Milton um, was, Milton dictated Paradise Lost. He was blind. He dictated it to his daughters. And Bentley assumed that they, they were mishearing what he said. Um, that there were so many things in Paradise Lost that Milton could not have meant um, that it must be that his daughters misheard him. So he had a theory of editing Paradise Lost, which is almost a pun theory of editing it, which is that what you needed to do um, with Paradise... Well, it's like when you're, when, you're, when you're at the gym and you're watching closed-caption TV and you realize that the... That, that the um, uh, transcriber has misheard what, what, what Ellen DeGeneres has just said um, and um, that she hasn't um, uh, I don't know I can't say something. Um, but then you correct yourself you realize that it's meet M-E-E-T and not meet M-E-A-T or something like that that was his way of editing Paradise Law so every time he could imagine that a line was a mishearing of something that sounded similar um, and that made more sense to him, he would correct it. So to take an example, um, at the beginning of Paradise Lost, Milton calls upon the muse um, who, he's, who he says are the muse that on the secret top of Horeb or of Sinai did first inspire um, that, that chosen shepherd um, who first taught how in the beginning um, God created heaven and earth. And he's saying... There's nothing secret about the top of Horeb. Um, anyone can go see it. It's a well-known place. And besides, God would do everything that he's doing openly. They must have written down secret where Milton said sacred. Um, and his daughters were listening to him, and he said, that on the sacred top of Horeb, of Sinai, and they heard sacred is secret, but I, Bentley, realized that secret makes no sense. It must have been sacred. And um, the great thing about Bentley, as many people have noticed, is that every time he corrects Milton, he's noticing something really interesting about Milton, which he's trying to get rid of. Um, and the fact that he's trying to get rid of it actually focuses your attention on it. And so without Bentley, I never would have thought, oh, secret, that's an amazing word there, the secret top of Oriver of Sinai. Why secret? That's a great word. Um, I would have just thought, yeah, sure, secret top makes sense. Um, but Bentley said, no, that makes no sense. And then you realize actually it does make sense, but not but a sense that you have to think about. Um, so Bentley goes through Paradise Lost all the way. There's a place where Satan is described as bound in adamantine chains. Um, and Bentley says, but adamant is a stone. You can't really make chains out of stone. Um, so um, it can't be that these chains were made out of adamant. It must be that Milton was describing Satan as bound in Adam and in chains. So, and that his daughters, ignorant as they were, 
heard the name Adam and in sort of do you guys know who Adam Ant is? <laughs> so Adam and in chains as Adamantine chains, those fools. Um, so all the way through he's doing this and he's How does Satan down in Adam that what Milton is doing is pointing out that from the very start, there's original sin, and Satan is within all of us um, from from the first. He has a long note on this, explaining what it is. Um, and would that of, be Adam down Satan? You would think, but <laughs> ben, Bentley is kind of crazily clever um, at, at trying to repun. Um, I mean, it turns all paradise lost into a vast misheard pun for the truth. Um, and the truth is Bentley's version of Paradise Lost, which is just terrible. Um, you know, it makes Tate's King Lear seem great. <laughs> um, and Tate is another person whom um, Pope attacks here. Is he the one that left the book? Was he in the garden? No, Tate's one was Jake's Lear happy ending. So, of course, Lear got married. Yeah, so in Tate's version, so, well, this is a, a little bit of restoration. You're, you should be very glad we're not reading Tate in this. Um, very glad. Um, Tate, so remember I told you about the restoration and how um, after the Puritans closed the theater, and, um, when, well, I, didn't, I don't think I talked about the theater, but when King Charles came back to England, um, Charles II came back to England in 1660, um, basically it was party time, um, and part of the parties was opening the theaters. But there had been no plays written for the public theater in England now for almost 20 years. Um, and they wanted to put plays on, and they also had this sophisticated French taste. This is one of the things that Dryden writes about, not in something we haven't read, the essay on dramatic poetry, where Dryden is actually writing about what makes Shakespeare greater than the French playwrights. But Charles and his court came back to England full of sophisticated French tastes, and um, they wanted to put on um, plays on the English stage, and there were two things they could do. They could write new plays, which they did a lot of, or they could go back to the old plays from 30 and 40 and 50 years ago, of whom the greatest playwright was clear. It was clear to everyone was Shakespeare. Um, some people thought Johnson was great, um, Ben Johnson, some didn't. Um, Dryden didn't really, but a lot of, but Shadwell did. Um, but everyone knew that Shakespeare was great. Um, however, the thing about Shakespeare is it was a little bit like, um, to them, he felt a little bit the way, a, the way I don't know, Charlie Chaplin feels to us, or the way 50s movies feel to us. Great, but you want to update it for modern tastes. So, a whole, so there are a whole lot of remakes of Shakespeare um, that were done in, um, in the 1660s and 1670s. And Dryden did one, and we read... Um, the preface to it, All for Love, which is, a, which is a, um, a, an updated remake of Antony and Cleopatra. And it's actually a very good play. Um, and it was Dryden's favorite of all his plays. Um, but a lot of people went back to Shakespeare. And Tate most notoriously did. So um, he got King Lear and he said, God, this is really an amazing play. But it's like an unpolished and uncut diamond. Um, clearly, there's enormous potential in King Lear. That's what Tate thought. Um, and so he said, so what I decided to do was um, bring it up to, bring it into um, um, conformity with our modern knowledge of how plays should be and how they should work. Um, and so he redid King Lear. He jiggled it. Um, he, 
he changed the order of a bunch of scenes, um, and he changed some of the plot. And in particular, the plot that he changed was he decided that far from marrying the King of France and going off to France, um, Cordelia would go into internal exile um, just like Edgar. Um, and Cordelia and Edgar would meet and fall in love. Um, and that would be really nice, how they fell in love. And that um, finally at the end of the play, um, Cordelia and Edgar would defeat Edmund and the evil sisters in battle and they'd all die. Um, but Cordelia and Edgar would survive. Um, Cordelia, spoiler alert, does not survive in Shakespeare's play. Um, and that not only would Cordelia survive, but so would Lear and Gloucester, that is Cordelia and Edgar's fathers, um, and that they would be so pleased by the triumph of virtue in their good children who stuck with them despite it all, that rather than Lear's accepting to be king again at the end of the play, he would once more resign the kingship, but this time to his good daughter and to his son-in-law. So he and Gloucester go off to a cave where they talk about philosophy and um, human life and what things are like, and um, Cordelia and Edgar become king and queen of England. Um, and this was, the, by the way, the preferred version of King Lear for about 140 years. Um, this is the only version done on stage. And Dr. Johnson preferred it. Um, what he said was that when he first read King Lear as a child, he was so shocked by the death of Cordelia, um, which is contrary to the chronicles, that is, the, um, the history, uh, the, the English history that Shakespeare got the story from, Cordelia does survive. Um, she's not killed. Um, it was Shakespeare who, who made her die at the end of the play. Um, that that Shakespeare suffered Cordelia to die in a good cause, um, which is um, was shocking and contrary to the faith of Chronicles, and that he's sure that, that, that Shakespeare shouldn't have done this. Addison, whom Pope attacks at some length in the epistles of Dr. Arbuthnot, um, had coined the phrase poetic justice, a phrase which is now very famous, um, had coined the phrase poetic justice in an essay that he wrote on King Lear. Um, in which he said that it's wrong to say that King Lear doesn't end with justice. It does, but it's poetic justice. That is, that the evil are confuted, and you shouldn't think, oh, Cordelia dies, this is all unjust, I'm depressed, I hate Shakespeare. What you should think is, no, the play is finally about the triumph of justice, even if it is tragic. Johnson disagrees with that. Um, and so his account of King Lear, and his preference for Tate... Um, which is a rare, not that rare, but fairly rare failure in taste on Johnson's part, um, is, um, is a disagreement with Addison. Um, Pope, however, prefers Shakespeare to Tate. Um, he regards Tate as a crappy poet, which he was, and, um, but he says, crappy though he is, he's 20 times better than any of the people I'm attacking here. Um, and the fact that he's only 20 times as good as the people that Pope is attacking shows that Tate really is crabby. Um, so, um, here what we have are people like Bentley and Tate who just have no idea what makes something great. See, that was my heroic couple. Um, who have no idea what really makes something great. Um, so, 
Um, we have slashing Bentley down to piddling Tibbolds, each white who reads not and but scans and spells. So these are all people who don't, who don't know how to read. They just know how to scan and to spell, um, which is just like, um, but most by numbers judge a poet's song and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. These equal syllables alone require so, remember? Can you reconstruct it? These equal syllables alone require though oft the ear, the open vowels. You can you can rhyme it, can't you? These equal syllables alone require though oft the ear, the open vowels. Come on, work with me, people. Rhymes with require. Yeah, all right. Yeah, though off the ear. Remember, though off the ear, the open vowels tire. Okay, so now what we have are each white, all these, all these um, completely pedantic, nitpicking critics, each white who reads not and but scans. That is, scans. Um, to scan, you probably know, means to figure out the meter of a line. Um, you sometimes talk about a line of poetry, whether it scans or not. Scanship is the, um, is the practice of marking the meter. Um, each white who reads not and but scans and spells, each word catcher that lives on syllabels. What's the joke there? It's an intentionally imperfect rhyme, which Pope only does intentionally. It's each word catcher that lives on syllables. But in order to make it rhyme, you have to mess with the last syllable of syllable. The last syllabelle of syllabelle. That's, that's the point. Each word catcher that lives on syllables. Well, also, word catcher doesn't scan. Nice. Exactly. Um, you have to turn it into each word catcher that lives on syllables instead of the much prosier, each word catcher that lives on syllables. Um, so you can make the line scan if you're one of these whites, and you can also complain about it. So that's a typical Popian joke. Again, it's a sort of one-line version of the long passage we looked at in the essay on criticism. Um, in such small critics, some regard may claim preserved in Milton's or in Shakespeare's name. So... What they're doing is they're parasites on Milton and Shakespeare. Um, their editions of Milton and Shakespeare will be um, mentioned in later editions of Milton and Shakespeare. If you go, in fact, to the library, you can get a very Orem um, edition of Shakespeare. They were put out at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Um, very famous editions of Shakespeare. And what they give you are every, every major editor's um, uh, speculations or corrections for any disputed line in Shakespeare. And if you go look at those, you will see Tybalt's name all over the place. I myself, um, in my own parasitic way, um, actually have a page correcting or arguing against the inundation of Tybalt's in my first book, um, since you asked. Um, in um, Ending Cleopatra, there's a place where Cleopatra says, 
um, but for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And then the um, uh, text says, the original um, Shakespearean text says, an Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. Um, so, but for his bounty, there was no winter in it. An Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. That's Cleopatra talking about Antony. And Tybalt says, an Antony, what does that have to do with anything? That makes no sense. Clearly, the opposition here is between winter and autumn. And what's happened is that the um, people who are setting Shakespeare in type have misread, which it's very easy to do, an A-U in autumn, A-U-T, as A-N-T. It's very easy to misread in cursive, an N and the U. Um, and those are, those are very frequent misprints, N for U and U for N, um, partly because printers are doing things upside down and backwards um, when they set type. All the stuff you learn in this class. Um, back in the day, when I was an undergraduate, that's how we did our papers. We would put the letters into a letterpress upside down and backwards. Um, and we wrote more than you did. So just think um, how educated we were. Um, so, and we did it in Greek. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we liked it, because that's the way it was, and you liked it. Um, do you know that guy in Saturday Night Live? The cranky old man guy in Saturday Night Live? Um, yeah, you should look this up. <laughs> look this up on Netflix. Yeah, they, I, I don't know his name, but it was... It, actually, I wonder... Might have been John Lovett. Anyhow, he would, he would go into these rants about how we didn't have these ATMs back when I was a kid. You got your paycheck, and then you went to the bank, and you stood in line for an hour in order to try and deposit it to your bank account. That's the way it was, and you liked it. Um, and so he complains about modern life. Um, all right. So um, Tybalt assumed that um, Shakespeare had written the obvious. Um, as for his bounty, there was no winter in it, and autumn and autumn twas that grew the more by reaping, um, and that this was misunderstood by editors who'd been typesetting Antony too often every time he has a speech. Prefix, so they they read autumn as Antony and got it wrong, um, and I think Tybalt got it wrong because one of the really interesting things about Antony and Cleopatra is how often characters in that play will use the phrase and Antony. Um, it's not only a proper name, but his his own proper name somehow gets treated as a common noun frequently through the play. Antony himself does that. Um, he says, "I wish that I could." Um, clap all of you together and make myself an Antony, form myself into an Antony, um, who could repay you for everything. Um, so an Antony is something that appears over and over again in the play. Um, Tybalt's emendation, though, and autumn was, is accepted by almost everyone. Um, any edition of Antony and Cleopatra that you get, um, unless it's extremely careful not to um, correct almost anything, will correct it to an autumn twice. And that's just wrong. Um, so what you should do after class is run home, take out all your editions of Shakespeare, and correct autumn to Antony, because that's right. It really is. Anyhow, Tybalt also made some good suggestions. Um, and so he gets preserved in Milton's or in Shakespeare's name, and that preservation now gets Pope thinking, of course, about Amber. Um, Pretty in amber to observe the forms of hairs or straws or dirt 
or grubs or worms, the things we know are neither rich nor rare, but wonder how the devil they got there. Um, so Tybalt and Bentley are like worms or grubs or straws or dirt or hairs preserved in the amber of Shakespeare or Milton. Um, and it's also what he's saying is the kind of thing they worry about are the worms and straws in the amber of Shakespeare and Milton, but they themselves are those worms and hairs and straws, um, the very thing that they worry about. So what's happening at any rate is that Pope says, so I was writing this, you know, this, this poetry that was not in any way deep, but was very um, polished. And people got jealous of me and started attacking me um, and carping about everything. And um, one of the things they carped about, just so you know, is his translation of the Iliad. They, they carped about his, um, his, his edition of Shakespeare, which is really pretty bad. Um, and they also carved about his translation of the Iliad, which they are probably right to have carved about because it looks like Pope actually um, was faking um, He didn't really know Greek. Um, shocking as it will be to you. Um, and that he was, what he was doing was what a lot of people do, which is he was looking at a lot of translations of the Iliad and figuring out what he thought Homer must have said on the basis of comparing three or four different translations and then giving his own. Um, translations into Latin as well as translations into English. Um, so he got, his translation of the Iliad is actually a great, great work, um, but it's not how you should read Homer the first time you read Homer. Um, Pope's Iliad is not um, the most accurate version. Um, so people like Bentley, whose Greek was, whose English was questionable, but whose Greek was impeccable, except for the fact that Homer actually does use the phrase adamantine chains in Greek, which Bentley um, not only knew, but had actually um, written a note about in his edition of the Iliad. See the stuff you learn? Um, as a friend of mine once said, um, nonsense is nonsense, but the history of nonsense is scholarship. Um, so that's what you're getting here today, the history of nonsense. That's scholarship. Um, the, um, um, that's where Pope gets attacked, but he's claiming that what he's being attacked about is that he's just innocently writing um, uh, very polished poetry and people are jealous of him. The result of that is that he starts having to be topical. He has to defend himself. So the, the quick um, poetic autobiography that you get here, um, which in a sense is um, interestingly going to make Pope um, a forerunner of the Romantics, although Byron was the only one of the Romantics who liked him. Byron adored him. Um, but is going to make Pope a forerunner of the Romantics is that the poetical character, the experience of the poet is that you start out as an otherworldly type of person concerned only with writing. And what happens is you're dragged into this world and into the disputes of normal, everyday life with people who are out to get you and from whom you have to defend yourself. Um, and Pope does that in his poetry. So his poetry becomes more and more topical. Now, this was, remember that what started out this little excursus was the question, um, how could you tell that the rape of the lock was funny? And um, it's partly that 
hope is a little bit harder to peg until you get to some of these satires, like the epistle of Dr. Arbuthnot. He's a little bit harder to peg as funny than Swift or Dryden are um, because he is writing in a mode and form where he assumes you'll know that he's being topical um, without, like Dryden and Swift, actually writing about shit, um, a word that you won't find, I don't think, in Pope. I mean, I'm actually pretty certain you won't find it in Pope. Um, he does write about castration in Eloisa de Abelard, but he writes about it in a pretty high-toned way. Um, you would have to know that Abelard was castrated to know from the poem um, that Abelard was castrated. Um, it's not, it's, you could possibly guess it, but it's not at all obvious from the poem. Um, so the point is Pope, in a way, is, um, is riding on the assumption that someone who writes in this mode um, who can be funny and witty and quick and so on is also going to be highly realistic. Is not going to be um, someone who is writing about the exotic, but rather what mock epic does is it treats the familiar as though it's exotic. Um, treats what is everyday as though um, it's being um, uh, uh, treated as, as, as something just amazing and the kind of thing that very high-toned poetry is about. Um, do you guys know about the anthropology? It's a big thing now of, of what are called the weird societies. Um, yeah, W-E-I-R-D. This is an updated version. of. There's a famous anthropological um, essay on... I, I forget what it is, but it's Akirama, something like that, the Akirama Society. So it's a very it's very weird people who do very weird things, and then you realize after a while that the name of the society is America backwards or American backwards. Do people know about this? Sorry. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's an updated version of it, which are the weird societies for psychological experiments, um, and basically it's um, it's Western undergraduates and. Um, universalizing from what they do when they go to psych labs and get paid $10. Um, so now these are called the WEIRD. WEIRD stands for Western European something. Oh, you do know about it. Okay, Western educated. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it is Democratic. Yeah, Western educated something rich democracy. Yeah. Um, so the question is, how much stock can you put in the way you guys uh, respond to psychological experiments to make claims about what human beings are like? Um, anyhow, um, the, the way the weird paradigm is always presented is, um, you know, here's, here is um, a group of people who, like the, what are they, the, ne the, the Nasarima, yeah. They're like Nasarima. They, they're very odd and do all sorts of weird things. And then it turns out that they're actually the most familiar people in the world to y'all. Um, only they're presented in a way that exoticizes them. And that's what mock epic is doing as well. So back to, see, I knew we'd start with the epistle of Dr. Arbuthnot. Predicted it. And I was right. It shows what a good predictor I am. Um, back, back to the rape of the law. Um, 
so again, what's going on now is is that so when, so so Liz, when did you realize it was fun? In class, okay. Um, well, it's very funny. You should reread it and see how funny it is. Um, but it's also you know part of what's um, great and amazing about Pope is um, the spectacular. Um, beauty of lines that he will put into funny poems. It's, he doesn't save them. Um, so you know when when he uses we looked at we looked at some of them last time when he talks Mepheus uh, Doctor Argonaut for example about the bright reversion to the skies. Um, that's an amazing line, um, and um, there it is in a funny poem. There's incredibly beautiful description of the wings of sylphs, for example. Um, in the rape of the lock, but it's all in the service. You know, it's like it's like um, extraordinarily beautiful cinematography in a farce, um, and you get those things, and they can be wonderful. Um, but it's as though Pope is always an amazing. His style is like cinematography, and it's like he's always an amazing cinematographer. Anyhow, let's go look at um, an example of. Um, the kind of thing that, that Pope does and that, that's uh, pretty impressive in The Rape of the Lock. Um, so remember the story is that um, there's this card game. The Baron, who we know from the frame, is engaged to Belinda. Um, is, um, the card game goes back and forth. Eventually he loses. He's kind of resentful. He really wants to... Um, do a kind of, you know, um, undergraduate, sophomoric prank. Um, and he has some scissors, and she has this beautiful lock of hair, and he snips it. Um, you can imagine this happening, right? Um, at a party? No? You don't go to, you don't go to good parties. Um, people do the equivalent of this sort of thing. But she gets really angry. This really happened. She got really angry. Um, Pope, in writing a mock epic about it, is sort of saying, let me treat this as though it's really important. You think it's important. I'll treat it as though it's really important. That's the epic part. But of course, in treating it as though it's really important, he's making a mockery of it. Um, but the mockery is supposed to make everyone laugh. Um, it's supposed to um, show that it's actually not that important and that it's designed to make um, everyone laugh. Um, it failed... But that, that's what it was. It failed to reconcile them. Um, but that's what it was designed to do. Um, so um, at any rate, um, the Baron um, cuts a lock of her hair. Um, she gets very upset. Philestres gets very upset. Um, and uh, go to, let's say, page 235. Um, and um, the gnome returns from the Cave of Spleen um, and finds Belinda in Thalestris' arms. Thalestris is the queen of the Amazons, and in this case, I, th I think an aunt of um, Arabelle Fermor's. Um, and sunk in Thalestris' arms, the nymph he found, that is the gnome, finds the nymph, uh, this is Canto 4, line 89. Sunk in Thalestri's arms, the nymph he found, her eyes dejected and her hair unbound. Full o'er their heads, the swelling bag he rent, 
and all the furies issued at the vent. So all these furies of, of anger and, and um, spleen and hatred come out. Belinda burns with more than mortal ire and fierce Thalestris fans the rising fire. O oh, wretched maid, she spread her hands and cried. Um, that is, it's Thalestris is now speaking. In modern typography, there would be quotation marks here. O oh, wretched maid, she spread her hands and cried, while Hampton's echoes, wretched maid, replied. Was it for this you took such constant care, the bodkin, comb, and essence to prepare? For this your locks and paper durance bound, for this with torturing irons wreathed around? So did you curl your hair so that someone would, would did you put curlers in um, so that someone would cut your lock away? Um, for this, with fillets strained your tender head and gravely bore the double loads of lead. So all of these cosmetic things. Did you did it, do it so some guy would cut your hair off? That question, was it for this, comes from the Aeneid. Um, that's what Aeneas asks about the shipwreck that he's in. So that, um, that's a famous, famous question in the Aeneid. Was it for this? It's a question that Pope picks up in the Wordsworth is going to pick up also. Um, the first version of Wordsworth's prelude begins with the words, was it for this that one, the fairest of all rivers, loved to mix his murmurs with my nurse's song? Later that became like line 200 of the prelude. He gives it an introduction. But those are the first words of his great epic poem. So was it for this you took such constant care, the bodkin comb in essence? perfume to prepare, for this your locks in paper durance bound, for this with torturing irons wreathed around, for this with fillets strained your tender head and bravely bore the double loads of lead. Gods, she goes on, shall the ravisher display your hair while the fops envy and the ladies stare? Honor forbid, at whose unrivaled shrine, ease, pleasure, virtue, all our sex resign. Methinks so honor is more important than ease, pleasure, and virtue. He thinks already I your tears survey, already hear the horrid things they say, already see you a degraded toast and all your honor in a whisper lost. I already see people toasting you for having lost your hair. To Belinda, may she lose her other lock. How shall I then your helpless fame defend? Twill then be infamy to seem your friend. And shall this prize, the inestimable prize, exposed through crystal to the gazing eyes and heightened by the diamond's circling rays on that rapacious hand forever blaze? So is the Baron really going to make a ring and put your lock in it in crystal so that he can show everyone what he managed to do? Sooner, no way, she says, sooner shall grass in Hyde Park Circus grow and wits take lodgings in the sound of bow that is in a bad neighborhood. Sooner let earth, air, sea, to chaos fall. Men, monkeys, lapdogs, parrots, perish all. So away with the whole world. Men, monkeys, lapdogs, parish, parrots. Let them all perish. She said. So she speaks. She says this. Then she goes to Sir Plume, her bow. She said, then raging to Sir Plume repairs. Um, so who is Sir Plume? Well, he's somewhat, he's a would-be dandy. She spoke. She said, then raging to Sir Plume repairs and bids her bow demand the precious hairs. Sir Plume, we now find out of 
amber snuffbox justly vain. So he's very proud of his amber snuffbox. And the nice conduct of a clouded cane. He's got a beautiful cane, and he knows how to um, carry it and to use it. With earnest eyes and round, unthinking face, he first the snuffbox opened, then the case. So we saw examples of that before. What is that called? Do you remember? He first the snuffbox opened, then the case. Do you remember another example of it? Zoigma, good. Thou great Anna, where thou great Anna, whom three realms obey, that sometimes counsel take and sometimes tea or tay, yeah, good. Or might stain her honor or a new brocade. So yeah, so again you get Zoigma. He first the snuff box opened, then the case. He makes his opening argument in the case. And thus broke out. My lord, why? What the devil? Zunes, damn the lock. For God, you must be civil. Plague on it. Tis past a jest. Nay, pretty pox. Give her the hair. He spoke and wrapped his bar. Now, notice that if you just... This is part of Pope's unbelievable genius. Technical genius. Um, here he is writing perfect heroic couplets. And in a perfect heroic couplet, he wants to describe a guy who is sputtering with ineloquence, someone who can't get out um, a full sentence without just, just um, losing himself in his own anger. So you have a form, which is a form of smoothness and balance and perfect rhyme, the heroic couplet, which is trying to represent a figure whose language is chaotic and unformed. And that's um, not an, it's not obvious how you would do that. Um, it's like um, trying in gorgeous black and white to show something in color. Um, that's not a very good analogy, but it's the same sort of thing. The form um, seems to require, seems to, seems to ennoble everything that it touches. If someone is speaking in a poem written in heroic couplets, they too are going to speak in heroic couplets. But now listen to old Sir Plume and just listen to what he says. My lord, why, what the devil? Zunes, damn the lock. For God, you must be civil. Plague on it. Tis past a jest. Nay, prithee, pox, give her the hair. So notice that if you just look at what he says, there's almost no hint whatever of the heroic couplet in it. There are two words that rhyme, um, and they did rhyme perfectly in Pope's time, divil and civil. Um, those two words rhyme, but notice that what the devil appears um, as only the sixth syllable in that line, and thus broke out. But then we only get, my lord, why, what the devil? So it's not a whole line. Then we do get a whole line with a lot of pauses. Zooms, damn the lock, poor gad. You must be civil. And we won't hear a rhyme there because we don't have two full lines. Then, plague on it. His passage jest, nay, pretty pox, which doesn't rhyme with anything that he says. Give her the hair, which also doesn't rhyme with anything that he says. So, there, so Pope manages to give you um, completely unrhythmical, unmetrical, unrhymed, um, uh, just just inarticulate rage 
and just like a piece of marquetry, fitted in beautifully to its surrounding context so that you still get the heroic couplets. Um, and thus broke out, my lord, why, what the devil? Zoons, damn the lock, for God, you must be civil. Leg on it, tis passage, just name, pretty pox, give her the hair. He spoke and wrapped his box. And that's an amazing thing to do, um, to give you a completely different kind of speech and yet have it merge perfectly with the heroic couplet without in any way um, denaturing the unheroic speech that merges with it. And now the Baron replies, it, gives, it grieves me much, replied the peer again, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. So what's his joke? Who speaks so well should ever speak in vain? Yeah, whatever he's doing, he's not speaking well. So what you get is this wonderful, um, uh, withering, fake respect. Who speak, it grieves me much, replied the peer again. Who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear, which never more shall join its parted hair, which never more its honor shall renew, clipped from the lovely head where late it grew, that while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it shall forever wear. He spoke, and speaking in proud triumph spread the long-contended honors of her head. Um, so... You can see how different the Baron's speech is from Sir Plume's. Um, it's what makes him um, the guy we like, and Sir Plume in his, in his um, ridiculousness is the guy we don't. But now notice that you could ask yourself, but what makes the Baron sound so much like Pope? Does he sound like Pope? And you can say, what happens if we do to him what we did to Sir Plume? So someone read his speech with, with only what he says. Allowed. Matt, thank you for volunteering. Okay, this is, uh, are you on page 236? Um, so uh, at line 131, it grieves me much. Okay, so the thing in parentheses, replied the peer again, he doesn't say, obviously. Right. Yeah, keep reading. Great, thank you. So um, notice that even though Pope gives him what's called a speech tag, um, that is replied. That's that's technically when you said said John or. Um, thus broke out, Sir Plume thus broke out. Those are called speech tags. It's a subject and a verb. The verb is a ver verb of speaking. He said, he uttered, he broke out. Um, the subject is um, a person or a pronoun, um, the baron, the peer, Sir Plume, she, he. Um, even though there's a speech tag for Sir Plume and thus broke out and a speech tag for the baron, replied the peer again, Somehow the Baron seems much more in rhythm 
with Pope. Somehow it's almost as though when we get to, it grieves me much, replied the peer again. It's that pause. We're getting a kind of pause. And if you're dramatizing how he speaks, that pause just feels um, part of his self-possession. It grieves me much. We speak so well, should ever speak in vain. And it's almost as though he's waiting for the narrator to put in the speech tag because he's in no hurry. So, it grieves me much, replied the peer again. Who, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. He's totally in tune with the poem that's quoting him. So Sir Plume is totally out of tune with it, and the Baron is totally in tune, in sync with it. Um, and it's, it's the, um, the quantity of synchronization that Pope is amazingly good at handling. But wait, there's more. So notice that what the Baron, in a way what we want to say, or what we could want to say, what we should want to say, what I want to say, is that um, the Baron, unlike Sir Plume, the Baron is in control of the parenthesis. The, par the parenthesis is replied the peer again, and the Baron is just timing his own speech so that there's time for the poem to put that parenthesis in. And you can see that that's true because think about how, and you asked just the right question, Matt, think about what happens when you read um, anything with a long parenthetical intrusion within it. The standard way that we have of reading such things is you read the whole sentence, parentheses included, but if you get it all, get it all lost in the parentheses, then what you do is you reread the sentence skipping over the parentheses. So if you're reading correctly, what you'll do is you'll read something including a long parenthesis, like I remember once I was reading Proust and there was a long parenthesis, but we didn't even go into that now, that, that interrupts the sentence right in the middle. See what I did? Now you have to skip the parentheses and say you're reading something with a long parenthesis that interrupts the sentence right in the middle. Forget the parenthetical remark that I made. So do that with the Baron. Um, it grieves me much, replied the peer again. That's not his parentheses. He's not interrupting himself. But it grieves me much. Who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear that while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it shall forever wear. So if you skip his parenthetical interpolation, what do you get? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he puts it in parentheses, and he gets the end of the parentheses, and he continues, and if you now reread skipping the parentheses, you still get the rhyme. And not only do you get the rhyme, you get a triplet. You get you get three in a row. You get um, hair, air, and wear. And Pope will almost never put similar lines, similar rhymes close to each other because they're distracting. Um, a thing that Pope is very, very good at doing is separating. Pope, um, famously, because his rhymes are so pure, Pope tends not to have a whole lot of different rhymes in his armature. Um, he'll use the same rhyme sounds over and over again. Um, hair, vein, I mean, just looking at this, hair, vein, cane, face, case, divil, civil, pox, box, and then again, vein, 
uh, square hair, renew grew, then the errand where uh, we can skip, spread head, so flow, pierced ears, had said. Um, day away, been, been seen, made the trade. Yeah, I mean, the, you, you can already see that he doesn't have a ton of different rhyme sounds. But because, just because of that, um, he's a little bit like a um, ukulele player. It's like he has four strings, but he plays them incredibly well. And part of part of the way he plays them is that he tends to keep um, the same rhyming pair or the same rhyme part. It's actually, um, someone asked about um, the spelling of the word rhyme. In modern linguistics, the word R-I-M-E, not R-H-Y-M-E, but R-I-M-E, stands for the part in two rhymed words, R-H-Y-M-E-D, the part that actually rhymes. So the R-I-M-E rhyme in said and head is ed. That's called the rhyme um, in those words. Um, Pope tends to keep R-I-M-E rhymes separate from each other by at least three or four lines. Um, when he doesn't, he has a reason for not doing it, as is the case with the barons. So that's so it's definitely intentional. There's no question about it. All right, just to finish this, um, no one wins. Why? Because the hair is translated to the skies. It's apotheosized. Um, and that's all good, and that should make everything work out between them. Alas, it doesn't. Um, okay, what we you should keep up with the reading. Um, so it's more of the Horatian satire. Um, the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot was um, Pope first published it as um, an introduction to a series of imitations of Horace. And so we'll read some more of those. Um, but for Friday, if you um, didn't reread Eloise and Abelard, and uh, um, if you didn't get to read To the Memory of an Unfortunate Lady um, for today, you should read those because that's what I swear we'll start with. All right, see you Friday.